The sponsor for this episode is the publisher Rootledge. They publish a wide range of books for pre- and in-service teachers, teacher educators, and educational researchers. Go to their website to find a lot of books and resources. It's rootledge.com. Here from the Faroe Islands, I am hoping that you are having an amazing day. And I hope that you will uh, enjoy uh, the interview that I will um, provide you with today. And as usual, this is an interview that I have conducted with a researcher who researches leadership, either in the area of schools, early childhood settings and social care settings. Enjoy the interview. Yeah, so I am now in London at UCL Institute of Education, and with me is uh, Trevor Mill. Welcome to the podcast, Trevor. Uh, thank you, Johannes. So I'm actually the director of the London Centre for Leadership in Learning, which is a specialist centre within UCL Institute of Education. So our specialism is about helping people become better leaders within the education sector. Yeah, and we have um, a half an hour for this podcast, approximately. And um, I have asked you to pick one book or one research uh, area or one research article. So what would you like to talk about, Trevor? Well, I'm going to talk about the development of leadership theory in education, and in particular, the move towards what I call pedagogical leadership. And when I say I call it pedagogical leadership, it's a new definition of the way in which leaders engage with pedagogy in the 21st century, which I developed with one of your previous podcast uh, uh, performers, which was Dr. Joanna Paleologo. And we've been working on this project for about five years now, defining the theory base and then looking at it in practice. And we've got a number of papers that have been published, most of which are called Pedagogical, Pedagogical Leadership in Action. But we've actually been working closely on a project which has been five years of our life again, looking at one particular school in East London. And that school is a school called the Robert Clack School, which is in the London borough of Barking and Dagenham. Now, I don't know if your listeners know that there's actually 33 London boroughs, mm. and this is one of the outer London boroughs. It's right on the edge to the right of the map, as you look at it, as far east as you can go and still be within what they call Greater London, mm. and that's Barking and Dagenham. And is this a primary school or a secondary school? It's a secondary school. It's a very large secondary school, about uh, close to 2,000 pupils. Mm. And the story starts really back in 1990 with a situation where the school was in absolute dreadful state where the students had taken control of the school and the teachers would only venture into the common areas if they were more than one of them at a time. There was conflict within the local community in regards to the way in which the school engaged with the local community. And the school was deemed to be in a very parlous, difficult situation. Mm. 
and they had to do something and it was at the time when schools were becoming independent of the state as well they had to do something to try and support this school so they decided fortuitously the head teacher decided his future lay somewhere else they decided to appoint a new head teacher and what's happened since then in 1997 we're talking about there the reason i started in 1990 was because one of the members of staff of the school was head of faculty of actually it was he was a historian but he became head of the humanities faculty and he decided to put himself forward to become head teacher mm. now this was hugely unusual at the time because this was the time when england was introducing the national professional qualification for headship and people were not expected to become a head teacher who hadn't served in a senior leadership position so here he was just a head of faculty which is the equivalent to a head of department in a school put himself forward for headship and the reason he put himself forward was he was encouraged because the people who were working with him noticed that his class, his groups, were getting outstanding results despite all the conflict that was evident in the school. I mean, I won't go too much into the conflict in the school, just say it wasn't an area which you wouldn't have wanted to go mm. unless you were going in with uh, some heavy-duty support, okay? So he put himself forward and was given the job as head teacher. And within three years, that school turned around and became an excellent school and by 2004, I think it was, it was deemed to be one of the most, the 12 most outstanding schools in challenging circumstances within the UK. Mm. And in 2009, the government gave him a knighthood, so he became a sir. Mm. Okay. Now, I can name it at this point because I've got his permission to talk about mm. it. His name is Sir Paul Grant. Mm. Okay. So Paul took over the school in 1997 and set about changing it. Now, none of the history of the leadership actions he took are particularly unusual in terms of getting back adult control of the school. That's quite straightforward. Making sure that teachers are in the right place at the right time and delivering a reasonable lesson. And they developed something quite simple called the Robert Clack Good Lesson. So this was the template that said, this is how we treat children, this is how we run our lessons. Underpinning that was what we, he called respect. Respect for students as learners. So the students had an entitlement within that. So he started this road of recovery, but then it went on. And he retired last year in 2017. And the school has remained outstanding in most respects. I'll come back to the why I said most respects um, a bit later if I can. Mm. But it was outstanding in most respects. And what he built was a learning community um, or a community of learners. And what you saw was the culmination of work that's been going on over the last 40 years or so in terms of developing a leadership theory that's specific to education. Now, the reason I say that is because most leadership theory was borrowed. It was taken from other walks of life and adapted and put into the social context that is education. So we had history of people being scientific managers in the early days, which were very formulaic. This is how you do it, and you treat people, the workers, like the production line workers. But we developed through the 1970s in America, there was some great work done in terms of developing what became known as instructional leadership. Mm. And the primary focus in that was a guy called Ron Edmonds. And I'm sure you've heard of this and your readers will, or listeners will have heard of this. He developed the notion of instructional leadership, which became almost like a, a social desire 
amongst American schools and across the world. And what it meant was that principals of American schools, who traditionally had very limited responsibility towards student learning, were actually starting to get directly involved in their learning. So typically an American principal was expected to get make sure the kids were on the right buses, make sure the teachers were in the right place, and to evaluate the teachers, and that was the end of it, okay? But these guys started to get involved in making sure that the curriculum was, was much better because normally it was the superintendent's responsibility to look after the curriculum mm. and to actually make sure that the quality of pedagogy that was uh, happening in the classroom was good. So that instructional leadership sort of grew, got adapted, moved across the world, and in its first manifestation of being something different than instructional leadership, it became what we call learning-centered leadership. Now this manifestation meant that people were actually focusing on how to develop the most effective learning environment. But it was very much teacher-driven, if you think about it. It's where the way teachers are supposed to organize their classes. Is in America or England? It's all across the world, learning-centered leadership. Yeah. But in the more advanced establishments, and I'm being pejorative there, in the more advanced establishments, you started to talk about learner-centered leadership, which is different because this has to start to adapt the learning process to meet the needs of individuals. So it calls for differentiation, it calls for more personalized learning approach, and it became a sort of approach that said we can improve our outcomes from the school by being focused on A, developing an effective learning environment, and B, being aware of different learning needs amongst students. So we saw the evolution of this theory that's related to working as a leader in education, and the leadership in this regard is those people who are in charge of the organization. But there's a dimension missing, and it's still missing today, and too many times when we talk about school improvement, which is the relationship between the school and the parents and local community. Now that's critical. You're not going to get sustained school improvement without that relationship being productive. And we're not talking about parental involvement, we're talking about parental engagement. And that is a, a completely different thing whereby the parents are taking a direct interest in student learning, not just turning up and doing the PTA, not just doing the, uh, the friendly bit of fundraising. This is actually becoming interested and showing interest in the students' learning. Now, Joanna and I developed that idea and talked about the ecology of the community. And what we meant by that was it was not cultivating the community, it was working in concert with the community. Now, too many schools actually focus themselves as being the centre of attention and the parents and the students are expected to conform to the needs of the school. The schools where we saw the greatest and sustained level improvement were those schools that actually focused on the needs of the community and made what they did what they did to support them. So we coined this uh, phrase as pedagogical leadership and it's different from what you might have seen in the 20th century towards the end of the 20th century when we talked about pedagogical leadership as almost being a classroom interaction. We're talking now at the, the next level, which is where you're interacting through and with other people to get results. So anybody who develops the notion of pedagogical leadership is talking about the leader of a school or of a community who's relating to that community. And when I mean community there, I meant the school community. Relating with the wider community. So going back to the situation we found in Robert Clack's school, we had a man who came in and did what any head would do in those circumstances, which is to regain adult control. 
He then started to work with the community. He did it in a very strange way. Some people might say, this is an extraordinary set of circumstances. He actually excluded somewhere around 300 students. Mm -hmm. Now, what that meant is, don't come back to school until we talk to your parents. Okay. <clears throat> when I asked him why he did that, he said, it was the only way I could get to talk to the parents. Mm. And the parents didn't want to interact with the school. This was a traditional working class, low economy community where they saw the school as an unnecessary evil. But they had to actually meet with him before their children could go back into school. Mm. All sorts of excuses were offered. All sorts of threats were issued. But he sustained the, the, the control in that regard. Met with parents any time of the day they thought they could meet and very quickly regained adult control of the school and parents started to appreciate and the local community because he was actually doing strange things like getting on buses and saying to the bus drivers if there's any problem let me know going into local shops and saying if anybody gives you a problem I want to know mm. going to a hospital to apologize for a student who'd been irresponsible whilst being admitted into hospital and he gained the trust of the community mm. And as a consequence, the community started to support him. But more importantly, the students started to recognise that they were to engage with this learning opportunity. And by the time we got there, which the first time we got there in 2012, the students were talking about their experience in the school as being one of support, whereby everybody was allowed to be successful. No matter what they brought to the scenario, they were being successful, they were being judged as being successful. They make a big thing out of public um, show of, of success, but they also made a big thing out of private show of success. So you've got this close focus by the entire um, workforce of the school on supporting students and valuing students and responding to students. And when I say responding, I'm talking about finding a way to help these people learn and never relinquishing adult control mm. but it wasn't a regime it was a mutually supportive environment and when we the time we got there there was this mutual respect that students and teachers respected each other worked with each other they were tough on each other but they were fair with each other and what we found was a community where not only had the students transcended their beginnings, this is one of the poorest areas of, of England, never mind London, and it's an area which is, is going through a large amount of transition. And if I've got time, I'll talk about that as well. Mm. But what we found there was that the students had not only started to move away, and there was something like 80 students getting into university places from a low working class community, uh, there was something like 80% success on the student standard scores, which was the GCSEs at that time. Um, and this was extraordinary, because when he took over the school, 21% of the children were leaving with nothing. And by the time we arrived, as I say, it's a long time down the road, it's now 15 years later, he still got 80% plus, mm. getting outstanding achievements. And extraordinary things like, the national rowing championships, having six or seven of the students from the school winning medals at national rowing championships. Now this is the province of private schools. This is where the Oxford schools and the, you know, the Eton schools mm. excel because they put their resources into this. So for schools from a, a local authority, uh, students from a local authority school at the bottom end of the socio-economic strata, it was extraordinary. But this mm. is what he's done for them: is to lift yeah. them out of that.
Now, is it a one-off? Because the community, when he arrived, was a very strange one. And again, if you don't know your, your history of England, there was a Ford Motor Company, Ford, mm. you remember them? Yeah. They had a major factory in Dagenham. Mm. This was Barking and Dagenham. So the local community was comprised of two major events. One was a white working class overspill from London, which was relocated on a brand new housing estate that opened in the 1960s. Mm. Biggest estate in Western Europe, okay? And the second one was the Ford Motor Company, which relocated from Manchester in the 1930s. And there's a consequence. The population of Barking and Dagenham for a very long time, until the end of the last century, was almost exclusively white working class. They didn't go anywhere, they didn't do anything. They had the Ford motor industry, they didn't have to learn anything apart from how to be a Ford person who worked at Ford. Ford closed down their operation, hmm. okay? And instead of 40,000 people being employed there, now they're down to something like 4,000. So what happened was that Barking and Dagenham became the focus of people wanting to move there because there was cheap housing, an aging population that was moving out, lots of opportunity to move across. So during the time we're talking about, between 1990 and 2011, the population of Barking and Dagenham changed from being almost exclusively white working class to being the same sort of proportion you see across London now. Mm. And the average age of the community came down from somewhere in the close to the 60s to into the low 30s. So what you've got now as a local population is somewhere in the region of a multi... Uh, when I say a region, you, you've got the, the split you'd expect to find in London. There's a Muslim community, there's a, a West Indian community, there's a Chinese community, there's the refugees from Eastern Europe, there's refugees from Somalia, and they all come together into this polyglot. By the time you get to 2011 census, you've got less than 30% of white working class, but still the same poverty levels. Hmm. So this school continued to improve. And we said, how can this be? He wasn't a genius with white working class children. He's actually worked with poor children. So what were the key factors that drove him? And what drove him was his own upbringing. He came from Liverpool. And uh, Liverpool is a tough area to grow up in. Mm. And he found out that his roots were very similar to the roots of the community he was working with. He said, there's no reason why these children can't succeed. Now, if we said to him, Paul, you've become a pedagogical leader, he'd look at us quite strangely because he doesn't understand the mm. concept. But what he's done is demonstrate all the aspects of a pedagogical leadership in action. He's got a flexible approach to curriculum. He's got support mechanisms for individuals. He's got the most amazing development of staff which some people might refer to as distributed leadership. I prefer to, lead, to describe it as collective leadership. And they have a devotion and a dedication to student success, and they celebrate it, whatever it looks like. Consequently, he becomes the epitome of a pedagogical leader. And what we're looking for when we talk about pedagogical leader is someone who's going to recognize that what you offer young people as a learning opportunity should relate to where they come from, not where some idealist wants them to be, 
not working with some curriculum that's not relevant to them, but at the same time gives them the opportunity to develop into whatever world they want to. Mm. Now, along the way, the community has realized this, and they too have transcended themselves. So the students transcended the community, but at the same time, or transcended their expected outcome from life, but at the same time, so does the, the local community. The local community now expects their children to be successful and buys into this. And I've seen plenty of other places across the world where children have been successful and destroyed the community because they're taking away the roots of the community. So what the community has done is done the adjustment to what is possible and it's all the one work not a one man but a one vision mm. so that's what i mean by pedagogical leadership yeah. and that's what i mean by an example of it in action mm. you talk a lot about <clears throat> kind of also working with the community when you talk about pedagogical leadership and then i'm thinking in the scandinavian countries denmark Norway, Sweden, uh, our countries are more equal than here mm -hmm. in England and America. Uh, so we don't have deprived area in that sense as you are having here. But do you still think that in, for example, the Nordic countries, that it's very important to uh, work with the community as well? Oh, very much so. I mean, what we're talking about here is that children are experiencing a number of interventions interventions in their life or a number of support mechanisms in their life between the ages about naught and 12 you could say roughly you know the most important people in their life is their parents between the ages about 12 and 18 the most important people in their life are their peer group mm. they're also heavily influenced by the media now that parental support is vital without it those children can be diverted into all sorts of other possibilities of learning or what is, is judged to be supported. So it doesn't matter whether you come from a rich country, a country of equality, a circumstance of poverty, it's important that the, the community that surrounds you engage with your learning and you are engaged with the rest of that community. Now, when they get past the age of 18, they suddenly remember that they've got a parent and start thought relating to them again. But mm. the idea that you, you can have a school that works in isolation of the local community is just a nonsense. And yet too many of the schools do want to do that. They do want to close down rules, procedures, uh, behaviours to what happens in the school rather than what is acceptable to the community. I'll give you a bizarre example, and it, again, it goes back to the area of, of, of difference, and it, it can be equated to any number of communities. There are local idiosyncrasies, which are sometimes not explained without you living them, okay? Mm. But they don't lend themselves to a national picture or an overall picture. And this is a slightly bizarre one, where children were asked as part of a test as to where they would expect to find a lifeboat station. And obviously you worked out by now, we're talking about a school that's on the coast, or near the coast. Mm. And a lifeboat station is where they have a lifeboat to go and rescue people who are in trouble on the sea. Now where would you expect to find a lifeboat station? Would you expect to find it in the middle of the high street? At the beach. You'd expect to find <laughs> it at the beach. But in this particular instance, the lifeboat station was in the middle of the high street. Oh. So when asked on a national test where the lifeboat station was, all the children in that test got it wrong. Because mm. in their world, 
it was in the middle of the high street. Yeah. So this is an example of not lending, the system not lending itself to children's beginnings and children's um, strengths. In our country, most of our curriculum is geared up towards a white middle class curriculum. Now, it's an outrageous thing to say when we're in a cosmopolitan society. You know, I'm watching at the moment and I'm hoping this makes my partner laugh, you know, of, of people trying to become British. Hmm. and being asked the most bizarre questions that no one in Britain actually understands the answer to, but apparently they demonstrate their Britishness. Hmm. Now, these are, are sort of aspects of society which are not relevant. And the point I'm trying to make is that young people come to a learning situation with certain experiences, certain understandings, and a parental body and a community set of expectations. Now, if those aren't in line with what the school is aiming to achieve then you're into counterproductive territory. Hmm. So any organisation should be looking to say, who do we work with most? Who gives us the most support? At the moment, with young people, it's parents. When you get to a certain age, you're then competing with their peer group and you're competing with social media particularly. Okay, and you're lucky if the teacher gets to be fifth in line as the most important person in their life. So it makes sense to start working with the others. Okay, mm. now, I'm not saying to become aficionados of social media mm. or to start wearing your cap backwards and being a hippie you know, teacher. Mm. That's not mm. going to work. What will work is parents taking an interest, a direct interest in engaging in student learning. Mm. Okay? So it's relevant to any community. Yeah. Uh, listening to you listening to you um, you could maybe say that you are advocating for social activism for maybe for doing partly political work so, so, so how, how do you kind of uh, keep the fine line of not being political when you talk about pedagogical leadership in this way Well, you could say I'm a smoke salmon socialist. I don't know if that phrase works for you. That is, you know, I have a nice life, but I talk like a socialist. I'm not trying to be a political activist at all. What I'm looking for is equality, equality of opportunity. What I'm looking for is justice. And I think those are principles that transcend any type of politics that you might like to, to, to put into the equation. So the idea that I'm fighting for the rights of young people to have an education that will make them an effective adult is what I'm about. If I have to be an activist to do that, I will do it. But I'm not going to go and join any particular party or wear any particular political colour. Any action that's going to lead to that end is satisfying for me. Mm. So you're kind of aiming for higher values than party political values? Very much so. I think party politics confuses the issue. I mean, I don't know what it's like in, in Scandinavia, but what I can tell you is we never see it. We never have politicians being in place to see the consequences of their own actions. Hmm. They make a decision to change something, and it's at least five years before that manifests itself, by which time they're no longer there. Hmm. So the next government's either dealing with the consequences of a previous government or it's making a new mess for somebody else five years down the line. Mm. One of the most worrying things I'm confronted with, and perhaps this is why you see me as some, or you perceive I could be a social activist, we have a nation where we don't know why we have a compulsory education system. We have an expectation that children will attend school, or no, engage in compulsory education between the ages of five and 12. We have a system which is governed by their outputs rather than by the process they go through. 
and more to the point, we have no statement of human rights in relation to education. As a consequence, we end up with the most powerful, on-the-floor political force deciding what is and what isn't good. And yet what we need for the 21st century is young people who can make their mind up about what is a good course of action and find the information they need to take that good course of action. We're not doing that. We're, we're, we're coming up with something else. So that's why you hear me sounding a little bit like a, a socialist, I guess. Mm. But I'm actually looking for equality of opportunity and mm. justice. Thank you, Trevor. I think it has been very interesting. Um, yeah, so, so... Uh, If people want to kind of further get to know your research and your thinking, where, where can they go on the internet? Well, just about everything I publish is available one way or the other on the internet without having to pay any fees. Okay, I use two online platforms which are freely available to most people. One of them is called ResearchGate and the other one is called Academia Edu and my materials are on there. Within UCL, you can go to the main UCL website, which is very easy, ucl.ac.uk, and we have a system there where you can find the person, click on their research profile, and it will take you to any of the articles or yeah, outputs I've got. So all of my work is freely available. What you won't find at the moment is the final product of the book on the Robert Clack School. Mm. That's still in process, but you will find an article which I think sums it up perfectly which is called critical hope okay and I'm not going to give you the full title of that because if you look at my name or Joanna's name and look at the words critical hope you'll find us mm. okay but it actually sums up the history of how young children uh, have been given the opportunity to actually do what Paolo Freire was talking about 40-50 years ago mm. okay Thank you very much, Trevor, and good luck with your future research and work. Thank you very much, Yannis, for having me on the programme. Thank you for listening to the podcast Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. I hope you have enjoyed the interview and that you have gained some new insights into leadership. I hope that you will listen to the other podcasts in this series. A new podcast is being published on the first of every month. You are also welcome to join us on Facebook. There is a group called Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. If you just type in the name of the podcast in the search field in Facebook, you will find the group. Once again, thanks for listening and bye-bye.